Hello, I'm Johnny Brick. On September 24th, 2021, Brian Glanville turns 90 years old. The Football Library is proud to present a celebration of the man who pioneered English language football criticism. Father, reporter, fiction writer, chronicler of the World Cup, fearless challenger of football's elite, Brian Glanville stands above everyone else in the press box, perhaps even above the late Hugh McIlvanny. Brian started working back in the 1950s, where Willie Meisel was merging football and philosophy in his criticism, then found that the Italian game was more fitting a subject than the British kick and rush. In this retrospective, we'll hear from colleagues who turn from admirers into friends. It is also a delight to speak to Brian's eldest son, Mark, who in the second half will provide the domestic view on the man who was away reporting on soccer for much of his formative years. Our chat will form the bulk of the second half of this celebration. But before then, in this first half, I'll be looking at the work itself, a crash course in Glanville's journalism. Rather handily, Brian collected his 50 top memories for the Times back in 2007 when he was a young whippersnapper of 75, so I'll pepper those into the show. I should declare an interest here. I am a Jewish writer who, like Brian, has assimilated into English and British culture. As with Brian, however, I realise I am outside yet also within the tent, and this football library is my attempt to create my own niche in football criticism. Brian is the peerless doyen, as many have called him, of the art form. And now that Hugh McIlvanny has passed on, there are not many journalists who can remember English football from the golden era of the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, his book, The Arsenal Stadium History, runs from 1913 to 2006, which means that Highbury started hosting football matches 18 years before Brian came into the world in 1931. 39, January 1949, FA Cup, Highbury, Jimmy Logie inspires Arsenal. Jimmy Logie, the little Scottish inside right, was the inspiration of Arsenal's attack in the immediate post-war years. Immensely quick of feet and mind, an exceptional passer of the ball to the right wing or centre forward. In this North London FA Cup third round derby against Tottenham, he was given fatal freedom by Ronnie Burgess, always dangerously eager to attack. So Logie tore Tottenham apart and Arsenal won 3-0. Alas, he had been discarded later by a pompous chairman after refusing to shake hands with an errant Russian referee and was reduced to running a paper stall in Piccadilly. 27, Christmas Day 1942, Chelsea beat a weakened Arsenal. I'd never seen my favourite Arsenal lose before. Watching them go 5-2 down to Chelsea reduced me, age 11, to tears. Half a dozen Arsenal stars watched from the stands, kept back for the Army versus RAF game at Cardiff on Boxing Day. Walter Winterbottom, future England manager, was Chelsea's guest right back. Bernard Bryant, an amateur Walthamstow Avenue centre forward, scored four. Noel Watson-Smith, Yorkshire amateurs, Arsenal's guest goalkeeper, was overwhelmed. Brian Scovell was at Wembley Stadium covering the 1966 World Cup for the Daily Sketch. You heard him on Wednesday. In his own memoirs, Scoville called Glanville one of the most capable and aggressive football writers, comparing him to Margaret Thatcher because of how he made enemies of people. I come to praise Brian, not to bury him today, although these words on Brian Clough may well describe some aspects of Brian himself. 
A mixture of arrogance and initiative, bombast and generosity, intransigence and self-doubt. In the 1940s, while Brian Clough was learning how to play football, Brian was at Charterhouse at the same time as William Rees Mogg, father of the better-known Jacob. In early adulthood in the 1950s, laid low by tuberculosis, Brian had a brief spell in a Norfolk sanatorium where he occupied himself with writing articles for Italian and Indian publications as well as for Reuters, all the while desperate to get his collaboration with Cliff Bastin published. Brian would sit down on Sunday evening in Cliff's flat above a cafe armed with research from the British newspaper library the day before. You can find the book... Cliff Bastin remembers, on Brian's shelves in Holland Park, West London, and also on Amazon, priced, as I look, £35, £45, or, from an American bookstore, £115. Recovering from TB thanks to long walks without an overcoat, which boosted his stamina, Brian went back to London after seven months where he needed to stay away from smoke-filled rooms. The Bastin book saved him from a legal career, although it was demoralising for his first novel to be ignored. Brian reasoned that my football journalism would underpin my fiction. And he was able to talk to writers including Graham Greene and Philip Roth, while admiring the rise of his friend, the playwright Peter Schaffer. John Gilgood once turned down the lead role in Brian's play A Visit to the Villa. This is no ordinary football reporter or critic, and I would not hesitate to call Brian a renaissance man. 26, September 1951, First Division, White Hart Lane, Tommy Harmer's extraordinary debut. Harmer, a tiny, fragile-looking inside left, largely unknown, made a glorious debut for Tottenham Hotspur at home to Bolton Wanderers, whose hefty players were ridiculed by his supreme ball control and cool command, much to the crowd's delight. A shuffle, a quick wriggle of the hips, a mock kick at the ball, a backheel volley and he'd escape. Alas, it would take him six years to win a regular Tottenham place. 9, June 1958, World Cup final, Stockholm, Garincha's raids. Sweden had taken an early lead against Brazil when Garincha, on the right wing, swooped twice. Receiving from Zito, he took the ball up to two burly Sweden defenders, wrong-footed them with his amazing swerve, tore on at the outside to pull the ball back for Varvar's equaliser. On 32 minutes, he did it again, and Varvar made it 2-1. Brazil would win their first World Cup. Following the advice of E.M. Forster, Brian got out of England in 1952, heading to Italy, where he'd already been on family holidays. He chose to live in Florence, where, he notes in Football Memories, published in 1999, people often spat in the street and lira came in notes, not coins. His third Italian spell was in Rome, where, amazingly, Englishmen managed both Lazio and Roma, giving Brian good copy for Corriere della Sport, where... There were several fascists on the staff. At one point, he had 20,000 lira picked from his pocket in Rome. Back in London, he was deputed to cover third-tier English football, initially by Empire News. They didn't supply a phone, so when he attended grounds like Roots Hall, he had to find a phone box near the ground. Far better was Leighton Orient, owned by Jewish mensch Harry Zussman, the buoyant, irrepressible chairman who, in the week, made shoes. However... Having grown tired of the vicissitudes of the lower leagues and having had a particularly bad day where he arrived late at Aldershot, where Brian had to borrow six shillings from an old lady who restored my faith in human nature, Brian moved on. Glanville's books kept coming all the while, including two editions of Footballers Who's Who 
Bring It Back, and a fourth novel set in London's Jewish world. So much correspondence about the bankrupts was sent to the Jewish Chronicle that they eventually published them in a special supplement. Brian was paid by Sport Express three guineas, three pound and three shillings a week, as chief writer. In his spare time, Brian set up Chelsea Casuals, recruiting a motley band of men, including Mike Pinner, a goalkeeper who enjoyed the amateurism of casuals and whom Brian would write about when Mike was in goal for Great Britain at the 1960 Olympics. More on the Olympics shortly. In the early 1970s, a teenage Mark Glanville played for Chelsea Casuals. Dad notes how he had honed his ball control in our back garden, endlessly juggling a tennis ball. He was the master of evading tackles. The louts who dominated the team tired of being turned inside out in the yard, threatening to beat him up in training. In any case, Mark didn't much like the dressing room banter. Brian's other son Toby remarked that all you ever get out of the Casuals is misery. 30. May 1953, Rome. Hungary crush Italy. My first sight of that dazzling Hungary team at the belated inauguration of Rome's Olympic Stadium. The Italy team were largely composed of Roma and Lazio men. They were outplayed by Hungary, with Ferenc Puskas's deadly left foot, Sander Kocic's golden head, Nando Hidakuti operating behind them, and Joseph Boschik bursting through from right half. 3-0 was the score. 29. October 1961, Matthews returns to Stoke. After 14 years at Blackpool, aged 46, Matthews returned to his local club, Stoke City, then in the second division. You must have butterflies, he told me. Everybody has. In the tiny Stoke dressing room before his comeback game, it was impossible to talk to him. I'm not really with you at the moment, Brian, he said. Then he pulled on the red and white striped shirt and went out to play with the skill and exuberance of much earlier days. 1958 was a bumpy year and Brian, aged 26, covered the World Cup for the Sunday Times, which put emphasis on rugby, not football, in their own sports coverage. Indeed, Brian's application for a job at the Times in 1955 had been rejected with a dusty answer before allowing him to write as Brian Lester, L-E-S-T-E-R, Lester being his middle name. £20 an article and no expenses was the payment for freelance work in Sweden at the 80 at the 58 World Cup, he bumped into the eccentric psychologist used by Brazil and got the goss from training sessions, which he could attend. In 1960, Brian was given the first ever general sports column in the Sunday Times. The paper was nicknamed the Sunday Sometimes because of the stronghold by the unions. It was not an easy assignment for a writer who had passing interests in athletics, tennis, cricket and boxing. I was endlessly on the telephone, Brian wrote in his memoir. Two years later, he covered the Chile World Cup in 1962, while at the same time writing a novel based on the life of Danny Blanchflower, the celebrated rise of Jerry Logan. The book gained fans in Scotland and West Germany, including Franz Beckenbauer. Brian's contract stipulated that he had to cover the Mexico Olympics of 1968, where the newly introduced red and yellow cards ruined the football tournament. Excitingly, however, Brian ran into revolution in that tempestuous summer. He became a sort of war reporter, commenting on tanks, flares and combat. His novel The Olympian sagely commented on the self-absorption of the athlete, and this was reflected in his time spent in the Olympic Village, where competition trumped revolution. It brings new meaning to focus on the game to pretend not to notice the political uprising.
In between all his Olympics exploits, Brian wrote the script for the official film of the 1966 World Cup, but was rather irked that the directors had cut a sequence involving Hungary versus Brazil because of wretched camera positions. Brian also laments how clips cost a fortune, none of which finds its way to me, because he was paid a nominal fee for the job, like a session musician, on one of those old music recordings from the 60s. Brian, however, was surely satisfied with the fact that in New York and Los Angeles the film ran for months. 55 years on, Brian's history of the World Cup chronicles the 66 tournament, it will be a shame that someone else will have to step in for Brian for Qatar 2022. 40, June 1981, World Cup qualifier Budapest, Brookings Brace. One of the mysteries of Ron Greenwood's spell as England manager was his treatment of Trevor Brooking, whom he'd nurtured at West Ham United. He dropped him from the first team he picked for England. Later, after a four-game absence, he restored him to midfield in Budapest, who had been unbeaten there by England since 1909. Brooking responded with two goals in a 3-1 win, the second a thundering drive, the ball sticking in the top left-hand corner of the goal net. 15, July 1966, World Cup Final, Wembley, England versus West Germany. When Nobby Stiles slung a long pass out to the right, Alan Ball told himself he couldn't get it, he was finished, but get it, he gallantly did, pulling the ball back into the goal mouth. There, Jeff Hurst who'd already scored once and would do again, met the ball with a fierce right-foot drive against the underside of the bar. Had the ball crossed the line? Herr Dienst, the Swiss referee, looked to his Azerbaijani Lysam, Tofi Bakhramov, who pointed his flag firmly towards the middle. England led again. The controversy endures. 48. June 1970, World Cup quarter-final, Leon. Hurst, heroic and exhausted. After England's 3-2 quarter-final defeat by West Germany, an exhausted Jeff Hurst denied what looked like a perfectly good goal, went back with myself and David Miller, fellow journalist, in our taxi to Guadalajara. He was absolutely dehydrated. We stopped at a tiny village store. In the car boot, I found a solitary salt pill in my jacket, bought a soft drink and gave them to him. Blessedly, it seemed to work. 46. March 1957. Schoolboy International Wembley. Styles, the schoolboy star. Whenever I meet Nobby Stiles, I ask him to recall his two outstanding games at Wembley. The 1966 World Cup final, he inevitably replies, and England versus Wales schoolboys in 1957. That was when I saw the 15-year-old Stiles, then such an adventurous rather than defensive right half, bestride the field for England with his dashing runs up the right. One of the smallest players there, he was notable for skill, energy and passing, the inspiration of England's 2-0 win. These extracts are from the top 50 football memories that Brian had in his life covering football. He wrote it in 2007, a mere 75-year-old. You're listening to the Football Library where I, Johnny Brick, am celebrating Brian Glanville's 90th birthday, which falls on September the 24th. In the second half, I'll be talking to his son, Mark. For some reason, Brian Glanville's editor, Harry Evans, gave Brian's pagination space to Michael Parkinson in 1966. No one had the guts or decency to tell me about it. Worse, sports editor John Lovesy and Brian fell out, ostensibly over Brian's report of the 1970 FA Cup final, which contained minor mistakes. Harry Evans looked on silently as the pair bickered. Such a saintly figure of journalism in Evans, who was married to Tina Brown of Vanity Fair, doesn't come off very well from Brian's telling. Although Evans did see the value of the Golden Fix story, of which more shortly. The taints and honours of Geoffrey Green, the key influence on Henry Winter, weigh equal to in Brian's telling.
1965, Brian wrote about the different types of journalists in the press in Fleet Street. The more sensitive popular writer knows that almost every piece he writes is a self-betrayal, a selling out to the cruel machine which has produced him, a willful limitation of his powers. He is thus particularly sensitive to any form of outside criticism. The quality writer, on the other hand, is an isolated, if not an alienated figure, writing for an informed minority when, given the wide reference of his subject, he should be speaking to the generality. Besides, he is often poorly paid, while the successful popular columnist is affluent, a creature of jet travel, bottomless expense accounts and first-class hotels. What is wholly lacking, Glanville writes in a piece entitled Looking for an Idiom in Encounter magazine, is an idiom which will throw a bridge across the two cultures, avoiding on the one hand bathos, which is the nemesis of good sports writing, and on the other, stylized vulgarity, the nemesis of the popular school. Anthony Clavain wrote about Brian Glanville in his book Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here? I had such a time of it at Charterhouse, wrote Glanville. I went there as a kid, five foot two and a half, 632 Nazis against you. They used to play a satirical anti-Jewish record over and over in the long room. You never knew where it was coming from, who was going to pop out of the woodwork and insult you next. It was like Auschwitz without the chimneys. It is hard to think of any football writer who has exerted anything close to Glanville's influence over the last 60 years. Now in his early 80s, he has been described by the American journalist Paul Zimmerman as the greatest football writer of all time. In his youth, he was a reluctant Jew. I was Bermitzvah, although I found it boring, oppressive and tedious. I went around for years being anonymous and not telling anyone about it, it being his Jewishness. Glanville got a job at the Corriere dello Sport, while he holidayed in Rome, he marched into the office and asked for a job. I didn't speak a word of Italian, but I had a file of cuttings. He was delighted to see many of his articles translated into Italian and moved to Rome and then Florence, where he befriended several managers, including Bella Gutman, a Hungarian Jewish manager. When Anthony Clavain first attended press conferences as a Sunday Mirror football journalist, he noticed how much Glanville irritated colleagues by addressing managers like Ranieri, Viali and Zola in their native language. My first encounter with the great man at Southampton's old stadium at the Dell was not a disappointment. In between Glanville sporadically improvising a flawless 800-word match report, Glavain told him how much books like Goalkeepers Are Crazy, The Rise of Jerry Logan and The Story of the World Cup meant to me. His short stories and novels too, especially The King of Hackney Marshes. On the train ride back to London, he displayed his breathtaking knowledge of the world game and told me the story of a tubercular Jewish public schoolboy who abandoned a career in law to pursue his passion. In England, Glanville and his friend Willie Meisel would talk at the Cardamar Cafe in Fleet Street. They railed against English arrogance. And together with Ernest Hecht, Meisel and Glanville became a triumvirate of modern football critics. It would be wrong to call them a movement, being small in number and maverick in temperament. But they inserted a European sensibility into the national discourse, displaying an appreciation for the neat interpassing continental style forged by foreign coaches in Budapest, Prague and Vienna. These central European capitals had experienced a far deeper integration of Jewish immigrants than British cities, but instead of disappearing into the host culture, like the Goldberg generation, they had openly shaped it. 
The book Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here is the story of English football's forgotten tribe, and there is plenty of space for Brian Glanville in it. Uh, let's let's talk about Brian Goldberg, actually, whom you'll know as Brian Glanville. You do get in this uh, football library a laminated library card with Brian Glanville shushing in silhouette on it. And you talk to Brian uh, in particular, and Brian's written millions of words, but I, in, does your rabbi know you're here? You talk, to how, you talk about how Brian Glanville was at Charterhouse and was bullied unbelievably. And I was just trying to work out the the, t- the chronology of this, this would have been the 40s he was at Charterhouse. Yes, it was. Um, and he was bullied uh, appallingly. He's not, well, he's not a very typical, um, if there is such a thing as a typical Jew, because, you know, he's, he's, he's from kind of quite an upper, or quite a middle, upper middle class family. And um, back in the 40s, most of the Jewish population were working class. I mean, now it's changed. But Brian is... Is from a more you know privileged background, if you like, than say my uh, my parents. But um, he um, was bullied at Charterhouse, and I think that, and my theory is, that the reason why you get a disproportionate a number of you're talking about Jewish writers. Yeah. Let's just stick with that. You've just mentioned a number of people like David uh, Cohn and um, Daniel Harris. I can mention David Goldblatt, you know, Brian Glanville and so on, and Meisel as well. Who, but, but all these people were writing about, about football, but they weren't just writing. I mean, some of these people you mentioned are some of the best and most sort of innovative writers um, who've ever been. And Brian Glanville and, and, and others, I think, it was, it, it was partly because they were outsiders. Now, I'm not saying it's because they're Jewish, but I think when you're an outsider wanting to, A, prove yourself um, maybe as being English, more English than the English, um, B, you've also got a different perspective on an English game like football because you are from the outside. You know, I think that those are two qualities that help you uh, become a great analyst um, a, a, of the game and, and someone who can, you know, see, see through a lot of spin or see through even propaganda. And Brian Glanville's great contribution came after England lost famously to Hungary in the 1950s, when he wrote an amazing book about why English football was technically inferior to not just the Hungarian uh, football, but Europe, uh, in fact, the whole world. And that was a shocking book at the time, because in those days, and perhaps still now, English people think they've got the divine right you know, to be the best at football. But he was saying, we're, we're not sophisticated, we don't play possession football, we don't, we don't sort of uh, try and improve the technical skills. It's, it's a bit like push and shove, and, and uh, it's a bit like physical brawn as opposed to intellect. And it, it, and it was someone like Brian, who's a bit of a, a, you know, an intellectual, who's written on so many different things, not just football. Mm-hmm. And he pointed it out, as Meisel did as well. They both wrote these two great books, uh, exposing the flaws of English football. And I, I think it's no coincidence they were Jewish, but more importantly... It's no coincidence that they were outsiders. They would sit in the press box and be be very clearly outsiders in a in a in a, in a press box which was on the whole white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Yeah, um, I'm talking to Julie Welch on Thursday, whom I gather yeah. I, mean, I imagine you've met Julie Welch from time to time. Not not I, I won't I won't say I have. What I will say is she she was one of my great heroes when I was a kid. Julie was saying 
that Brian Glanville was prolific. Is Brian Glanville the best for any particular reason? Other than he was a pioneer in the kind of... I call it the Glanville School, which is... John Wilson's picked up the baton and uh, David Conn's picked up the baton. Just people who, rather than go in the trenches and get the quotes, as many colleagues of yours, Martin Samuel's probably the best at it. There's the tabloid style and the broadsheet style, and Glanville could never be a tabloid writer, is what I'm saying. And why was he such a good broadsheet writer? I could could write a thesis about about five different things there. I mean, I'll, I'll first of all just answer by saying I think there's a... You've presented a false binary between um, the tabloid writer and the broadsheet. I know I have. I did it on purpose. <laughs> uh, it's a false dichotomy. And, uh, ironically, Brian and I have talked about this. because, I, you know, I, Again, like Julie, he was a hero, and I got to know him very well, uh, and you know, luckily counted him as a friend. But weirdly, when I first got into sports journalism, you know, and, and I ended up 18 years myself at the Mirror, so... Brian was on the Sunday People uh, as a columnist. Oh, people, but but it didn't really work out. Um, but but I think that I mean the Mirror for me is a great example, particularly in its heyday, of having great writers. Whether you know people like Keith Waterhouse, John Pilger, uh, Paul Foot, um, and and also great sports writers like Frank McGee, uh, Ken Jones, people like that over the years, who could write equally well for the broadsheet as for the tabloid. But I think it's I think it's more that Brian he was uh, you know because he's, he's, he was an absolute sort of genius in many areas. For example, he wrote um, for that was the week that was, which was a great satirical uh, program that David Frost. I know my place. People like him and Gerald Kaufman, another sort of young Jewish uh, uh, writer at the time who became a Labour MP, mm-hmm. um, they wrote for these very good like satirical programs in the 60s he then um he wrote plays he wrote novels i mean i grew up reading in fact i think if it wasn't for reading goalkeepers are different i don't think i would have been interested in writing about football it was an amazing novel it's obviously for young adults but it, it, it's a lot of the novels that he wrote uh, i was rereading them before i, I wrote does your rabbi know you're here so uh, brilliantly written and he could excel in loads of fields of writing. I remember him talking about uh, how he, you know, he went to America and interviewed Norman Mailer, um, you know, and, the one, and there's a great 1966 film about the, uh, the World Cup. Yes, he did the script. A man of many talents, but one thing he didn't do, that's true, is go to get, what, get the quotes or the nannies, as they used to be called in the days of rhyme and slang. There is, this, there is a division to a certain extent between, uh, in, in sports writing, where people who go to get the quotes from the players write the Wayne Rooney last night said blah blah, and mm-hmm. then there are people who analyse, you know, your Jonathan Wilsons, uh, Jonathan Lewis, and um, Barney Renee and people like that. So yeah, there is a there is a gap. Now Brian was the first to uh, write um, beautifully about football, not just in newspapers but in books and plays and so on. Yeah. I've never seen him over the years going to get quotes from uh, players. Rob Steen wrote in the Cambridge Companion to Football about Brian. In writing and constantly updating the story of the World Cup, a definitive volume reprinted for the eighth time shortly before the 2010 tournament, the 14th he had covered, 
He brought faraway matches and far-flung figures to the attention of aspiring journalists. Best known for his trenchant work as chief football correspondent of the Sunday Times for 30 years, his love of Italy saw him base himself in Florence and Rome, reporting and writing columns for Corriere della Sport, La Stampa and Corriere della Sera. To watch him compose a runner in those pre-laptop, pre-lapsarian days was an education. Producing a piece of A4 paper which he had divided into a grid, the number of boxes precisely allocated according to the number of words he had been asked to submit, he proceeded to write a word in each box, the better to save the sub-editor any cutting and hence ensure every word found its way into print. Once he had phoned his copy over, he would make a collect call to his second home and dictate in apparently perfect Italian an off-the-cuff report to Corriere della Sport. There was no one quite like him, reckoned Jason Cowley. Football memories, with its rapid staccato sentences, non-sequiturs and jumpy, anecdote-rich style, captures something of the essence of this restless football intellectual, who has perhaps spent more time watching the game than is wise for any sane man. You, you worked in the same profession as Brian Glanville. Yeah, I, I, Brian, Brian, I met quite early in my journalistic career uh, because I was just doing loads and loads of football, so I'd bump into him matches, and we quite often get the train back together. And Brian, Brian loved talking. He loved people listening. He loved people talking. And me, I'd been reading him since I was about, I don't know, 10 years of age, and he was my first football writer. Who He was the guy who made me fall in love with football because of the way he wrote about it and his book on the World Cup. The night, uh, you know, the history of the World Cup, which we keep updating, of course, is the single best book on football for me because it's history and it's written the way he writes with the depth of knowledge he has, which is both, in a way, sociological and technical and, you know, specifically related to football. So he sort of ticks all the boxes. Plus, he writes, you know, really well. He's the guy with Hinterland. And so on those train journeys, I would just sort of listen to him talk about the time he met Lenny Bruce or whatever. And, you know, we wouldn't often talk football. You know, he knew I was interested in boxing, so he'd talk about boxing. Um, very, you know, but the funny thing is, um, I don't know why I should say this, but he, people I know very close to are his family, part of his family. And apparently he wrote his first novel um, many years ago, and he unfortunately chose to write about his own family, which was not a clever thing to do. And I think that that's the big mistake he made in his life. Oh. Unfortunately, you know, I, you know, really, you you don't do that. I mean, I'm I'm now writing novels. There's no way on earth I would ever go anywhere near talking about my own life. Uh, what was you the know? name and of the book? It's the one little. His, his book, I don't know. He wrote two or three novels, but just that first one, you know, he wasn't a good Jewish boy. Let's just put it that way. I see. Yes. And Brian Goldberg, as was. Um, I didn't even know it. To be honest with you, I didn't know his name was Goldberg. I always thought Glanville was so did know, I? on the level, to be honest with you. That's so why Anthony's, that. <laughs> Anthony's book was so amazing, because there's this big chapter, and I've spoken to Anthony about it, and I'll, I'll quote it in this show. Um, but he is the doyen, because he, he was the first one to bring football criticism into the English language. I don't know if he's told you about Willy Meisel and Hungary. Yes, no, I know. I, I, yeah, I know, I know the history of this stuff, you know, and I, it's very clear how important. Well, you know, also he had that, you know, that extra level. He knew Italian football. You know, he's reporting for English papers at the same time, the same match. He's reporting, doing a slightly different version for an Italian paper. Um, so here's a man who, who's got a broader sensibility of the game 
That's why he was the man to write the World Cup book. I don't think anyone else could have written that book half as well as he did because he, you felt he travelled to these places. He, he talked to the players. Um, even when he hadn't, he'd done his research properly. He talked to people who knew the people. So he brought a journalistic aspect to fine writing, for want of a better expression. And he, he, so he had a foot in both camps. So he, he was a writer and he was a journalist. So he comes across as a kind of more benevolent Norman Mailer. Is that a good comparison or a stupid one? Very, I tell you something, that is perfect in Brilliant. many ways because okay. I've been talking with Norman Mailer a lot recently and Norman Mailer has the ego and that Glanville almost has that you couldn't get away with in England because the American system, um, the adulation for the likes of Hemingway and Mailer and other macho writers... It's not the same here. Following Anthony Clavain, Rob Steen. As well as Rob and Anthony, plenty of other journalists from the toy department have said nice things about Brian. Leo Moynihan's dad, John, was a friend of Brian's, dating back to their time covering the game in the 1960s. Nick Schapanik, meanwhile, was also a train buddy of Brian's. Uh, here's your football library laminated card. Uh, do you mind if it's got Brian Glanville on it, shushing you? Oh, God, no. What, a, what an honour. Mm-hmm. I hope that this library, if it becomes real, will be named after Glanville, who is ninety nine zero next year. Have you read his books? I have, yeah. I grew up with uh, Goalkeepers Are Different, was read on several occasions mm-hmm. when I was young. and probably should be read again now, to be honest. Well, yeah, never out of print. Um, but your dad, um, can I linger on your dad? Because I don't know that much about him. How, how long did he spend to put the soccer syndrome together? It was just around the time he was getting onto the sports desk. He covered a couple of games at the World Cup. So I think he started writing... He, he loved writing sort of little essays about the game. And actually, I th- Glanville tells me that Dad was away... Uh, Glanville was out in Italy, as he often was. Mm-hmm. And Dad was sending him letters describing little footballing events that happened. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book about... Because they played Sunday football together, Brian and my father. They, they created a team called the... Chelsea Casuals started just playing on a park and so dad would send letters to Glanville and, and Glanville would tell me that was told me recently that he'd sit reading these letters laughing his head off in a little Italian bistro or something and demanding that Johnny write John my dad writes more so I think that sort of was the embryonic stages of the syndrome oh, and then he, um... the very fact that I haven't seen him at the ground means he can't be well, be well. I mean he, he would get to games on a hospital he didn't yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy just just loved to be at games, you know, and I'd see him cycling to, you know, tying his, his chaining his bike up outside Loftus Road, and uh, you know, I've been been fortunate enough to be at his uh, to go to his Holland Park mansion and um, found my way through the piles of papers to actually uh, sit with the, the great man. Uh, this is before I was at the Times. I think I was I did a feature on him for a Total Football magazine. Grandpa also has a fine voice because you know his son's an opera singer. Yes, uh, and Millwall fan. But uh, you haven't lived until you've been serenaded with uh, the songs of Tom Lehrer by <laughs> Brian Glanville in a packed railway carriage on the way back from a, a playoff final in Cardiff. Oh, if only. I think um, if I, I'm in touch with Mark and I'm trying to sort something, but uh, if you can dig up some um, some mid stat audio if of I've it. Got, see if, <laughs> if only. I should have had my digital phone. It was John Brodkin. He was then working for, uh, out in the field for the Guardian and uh, and me and uh, about fifty 
fans in, packed into this, this coach and, and Granville burst into song. Memorable moment. Leo Moynihan and then Nick Schapanek. I suppose the doyen in waiting is another great pal of Brian's. Paddy Barclay has done the rounds of British newspapers. I first read him in the Times in the mid-2000s. He's written about football for half a century. In Paddy's own retirement, he pops round to Holland Park from time to time. So you're, you shared a press box in, well, how many World, eight World Cups you shared a press yeah. box with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, well... I remember being with him on a sweaty day in Saint-Étienne uh, when England and Argentina drew that epic and they were settled on penalties in, uh, in the World Cup 1998. And uh, it was great. I remember we were um, Champagne. walking up. At, it was the Scottish uh, yeah, cabal just over there. Hugh, I, I don't know how often Hugh shared his champagne, but anyway. Uh. Um, yeah, he... he um, but to be with him at that time and to be able to say, now, how does that rate with the, you know, the ones you saw in 1970 and stuff like that was great. I, I remember also being with David Miller uh, in the, the classic uh, Guadalajara match, uh, France against Brazil, and you know to be to have been with him, and because he went back to 1966, and and to say you know how does that rate with the great matches you see? That was I, I used to love doing that. I used to love getting the opinions, and I, even now I I haven't been for a while, but uh, I go occasionally around to to Glanville's house and. And, and talk to him about, you know, things from the past then. The great Paddy Barclay, doyen in waiting, I think. When Brian received his award from the Sports Book Awards, he said he was a frustrated stand-up. In a piece about Jimmy Greaves, which must have been banked some years before so it could be printed at the announcement of his passing, Brian recalled his memories of the striker. It was the day before the 1966 World Cup final at the Bank of England grounds, Roehampton, where the England team was going to be announced. Jimmy must have been in a state of anxiety. He had been forced to drop out of the team when injured playing against France and Jeff Hurst had taken his place, a very different kind of attacker. Despite the moment of high tension, as Greaves waited to know if he would take part, remember, there were no subs then, in the most important game of his or any other player's career, his demeanour was cheerful and friendly. He came up to me and said, we must have another game next season, Brian. He was alluding to an ad hoc team known as the Tennis All-Stars, which functioned out at Abridge in Essex, and for whom Jimmy played in goal, which had once played against my own little Sunday side, Chelsea Casuals. Had Jimmy been fit for the World Cup final, Brian writes, England would surely have prevailed with far less difficulty than they did. After all, Greaves scored more goals in the English top flight than any other player in history. Never mind Shearer and Rooney, Greaves was prolific for Chelsea and Spurs and scored six hat-tricks for England against the likes of Scotland, Peru and, twice, Northern Ireland. 45, April 1973, European Cup semi-final, Turin, Juventus versus Derby County. Brian Clough explodes. Juve had won 3-1, and Peter Taylor, Derby's assistant manager, has furiously tried to stop Helmut Haller, Juve's German inside right, speaking to the German referee. Two Derby men had been controversially booked. Brian Clough emerged from Derby's dressing room, surveyed the waiting Italian journalist and snapped, No cheating bastards will I talk to. I will not talk to any cheating bastards. He shut the door, reappeared to say, Tell them what I said, Brian, which I did, to a predictable reaction. 36. 
May 1985, European Cup final, Brussels, the Heisel disaster. Sitting in the press box at the dilapidated Heisel Stadium when Liverpool met Juventus, it was hard to know at first what horrors were happening. Why the vast empty space on the terraces where Italian fans had stood? Why the constant calling over the tannoy for Italian names? Then an English photographer stood beneath the press box, held up the fingers of both hands denoting numbers, and drew his finger ominously across his throat to show that fans had died. Only later did one know how easily the carnage might have been avoided by braver police and a decent stadium. I can't believe I didn't know about the golden fix which Glanville illustrates in his book Footballers Don't Cry, Selected Writings. And this piece originally was in Champions of Europe, written in 1991. Uncovering the Golden Fix was a collaboration between Glanville and Keith Botsford, a polyglot American journalist with an Italian mother and a father who had played tennis for Belgium. His Portuguese was excellent. He also, like myself, spoke Italian, Spanish and French. German too, and some Russian. Over 50 pages, Glanville illustrates the years of the Golden Fix, which comes down to several incidences in the 1960s and 1970s where Italian teams were suspected of fixing a match. Witness Exhibit A, the return leg of a fixture between Liverpool and Internazionale. The return leg in Milan was lost 3-0 with a couple of really strange goals. For one of them, Peiro, another Spanish international playing for Inter, ran back from behind Tommy Lawrence, the Liverpool keeper who was preparing to clear the ball, kicked it out of his hands and put it in the net. Corso scored an equally contentious goal. A free kick was given to Inter on the edge of the box. With his famous left foot, Corso struck it straight home though the referee, the Spanish Ortiz de Mendibil, had clearly indicated that the kick was indirect, he allowed the goal. Glanville also prints a conversation between a fixer named Salty and a referee named Lobo. Lobo told Keith Botsford, I am not a rich man. $5,000 and a car is four years' work for me. I could have taken the money and no one would have known. I'd be a richer man than today, but I didn't. I did my duty and I didn't get to be on the World Cup list which was the one thing I wanted. Ditto Georgi Vedas, who after his sturdy bravery, his defiance of all the temptation Inter put his way and his impeccable refereeing of the Inter-Real Madrid semi-final in 1966, his reward was to be banished forever from international refereeing. You did not defy the European football mafia with impunity. As with the corruption allegations now proven with fixing the World Cup for Qatar, publication of the match fixing in the 1960s and 70s came in the Sunday Times in April 1974. It led, Glanville writes, at once to an almost hysterical closing of ranks by the Italian media, a despicable omerta. Though the clamour was great, there was dead silence on the subject of our specific accusations. The newspaper for which I myself had written for many years, the Corriere della Sport of Rome, was bold enough to publish a translation of the whole long article on its back page. But in the editorials on its front page, it consistently attacked us. Its editor, Mario Gismoni, told Glanville, I had to do that, otherwise they would have said I was playing Lazio's game against Juventus. What? In March 1975, the Sunday Times published a chart which showed how mysteriously often the big three of Italian football, as you can guess, Milan, Inter and Juventus, had their European matches controlled by the same small group of referees, including Godfrey Dinkst, who'd refereed the World Cup final in 1966. Italian clubs won six 
and drew three of the games he refereed. Ditto French referee Michel Vautreau, who handled the second leg of a tie between Roma and Dundee United. All it needed, writes Glanville, was 100 million lira, about £50,000 in 1984 currencies. Two fixers had approached Senator Dino Viola, the president of Roma, who had agreed to bribe the referee and then admitted that he had done it. However, for delaying so long, he was suspended, but the delay was long enough to let Viola and Roma off the hook. When an inquiry was held by the disciplinary body, the club and its president protested that it had come too late to be valid. The bizarre statute of limitations in force had been infringed. From Glanville's perspective, the saddest part of this chapter, which you can find in Footballers Don't Cry, which also contains some of his stories, was when Glanville was in conversation with Pierre Cesare Beretti, president of Fiorentina at the time they spoke. Earlier, he worked for the Turin paper Tutto Sport. When I spoke to him in that railway compartment about the Juventus Lobo Salty business, remember Lobo the referee, Salty the fixer, it is as though feet had walked over his grave. He became suddenly quiet, almost evasive, and said, Non mi interesso del costume, I'm not interested in the background. What an appalling, significant admission that was, notes Glanville, for if the good guys, the Berettis of this journalistic world, we're going to behave like the three wise monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. What chance had Italian football got? How could they square such a stance with their consciences? How could they go out seriously to report games when they sensed that they might be bought, fixed, manipulated? The tale was reported in John Foote's book Calcio. And the $5,000 fix that didn't work is still strangely underreported. 37. May 1955, Rome. How Rouse offered Carver the England job. I'm meeting Stanley Rouse at the Quirinale Hotel, Jesse Carver, Roma's successful Liverpudlian manager, told me. Come along, it might do you some good. In the hotel foyer, Rouse, all-powerful FA secretary, towered above us. Did you have a good journey, Sir Stanley? I asked. Yes, 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 who are you? He replied. Then he astonished me by offering in front of me Walter Winterbottom's England managership to Carver. It's about time we brought Walter back into the office, but Carver did not accept. Walter stayed on until 1962. I kept the secret for many years. 34 May 1956, FA Cup final Wembley, the Revy final. A coruscating display by Don Revy as Manchester City's deep-lying centre-forward inspired his team's 3-1 conquest of Birmingham City. Some consolation for his deep disappointment seven years earlier, when after engineering second division Leicester City's semi-final conquest of Portsmouth, the soon-to-be-crowned champions at Highbury, Revy missed the final after taking a violent blow on the nose and losing pints of blood. At Wembley, he had elegant support from such players as Roy Poole, Roy Clark and Bobby Johnston. Note how interesting it is that Glanville misses out Troutman entirely. In his book of obituaries published in 2008 by The Guardian newspaper, Brian succinctly captures the life and times of 87 players or managers, all of whom retired well before the Greed is Good League began in 1992. 
George Best and Sir Stanley Matthews have the most words written about them, with the England managers chronicled at the end of the book in a way that makes one want to read Brian's book on England managers. In The Toughest Job in Football, published in 2008 as well, Glanville described Alf Ramsey as dedicated to the point of obsession, ineluctably xenophobic, socially inept. He had no real hinterland. Football had been given an almost religious importance. Hmm, to me, it makes him sound like Rafa Benitez or Arsene Wenger. Without the xenophobia. 13 pages are devoted to the Graham Taylor era of 1990 to 1993, of which Brian was hugely critical. Brian was once accosted by Graham over something that had been written three years beforehand. As per his obituary, I think that Derek Dugan, the former chairman of Wolves and the PFA, Professional Footballers Association, has a Glanvillian quality. With his fellow Wolves players, he was not, it was said, a popular figure, where many found him persuasive and intelligent, others saw him as arrogant and opinionated. A man whose career at Arsenal coincided with Glanville's adolescence is introduced as such. Has there ever been a more brilliantly entertaining and magnetic all-round sportsman than Dennis Charles Scott Compton, who disdained the dull and defensive who so obviously enjoyed his sport? His full name is given because of the cricketing scorecard. Compton played first-class cricket for England. And it makes me think that maybe footballers should be referred to in that way. England's fourth goal scored 85 minutes. B-A-T-M Saka assisted J-E Lingard. Hmm. In 2016, Brian was garlanded, as I mentioned, by the Sports Book Awards with an outstanding contribution to Sports Writing Award. In an interview conducted in the room, he was asked what gave him the most joy, journalism or his creative work. I mean, I love football journalism. I've always wanted to be it. I mean, when I was at school, I was writing Arsenal almanacs and things. When I was at Charterhouse, I was writing match reports for the Carthusian, which were very unkind and I think probably unfair. I would never write as pungently now as I did then. But um, I would have thought novels, particularly my novel The Olympian, was the only one which had great success in the United States. Uh, And uh, A Second Home, which was about a neurotic Jewish actress and Peter Hall was going to make it his first film but as this was me he didn't uh, there's a wonderful Italian saying which I think always applies to me Se faceva capelli nascono senza teste. if he were making hats he'd be born without heads I mean I've often been called the most influential journalist but that's only in question of other people's style and it may or might not be true I think it probably isn't but to do the things I wanted to do are impossible because you're just a a voice crying in the wilderness. I'd have loved to have uh, uh, absolutely exploded the regimes of that horrible swine, Jean Avalanche, when he was president of uh, FIFA, having ousted and through bribery our own Sir Stanley Rouse, and then later on Blatter. But you're impotent. There's nothing you can do. You haven't got the power. You haven't got the leverage. So by definition, uh, almost only journalists with uh, altruistic ambitions is by definition going to be a failure. You can see on YouTube the video tribute which preceded a warm presentation from goalkeeper Bob Wilson. It included Brian's fellow Italian speaker Roy Hodgson, Glanville acolyte Matt Dickinson from the Times, Brian's erstwhile world soccer editor Gavin Hamilton and Joe Glanville herself. And I met him in Milano when I was working for Inter at a lunch that uh, I shared with him and my wife, and uh, he regaled us with many interesting stories about his life, not only in Italy, but of course his, his work in England up to that point. Brian's never been one to be swayed by the, the latest 
phase or the, the latest fad. Um, his ideas and opinions are always well thought out, well researched. He's not uh, someone who will jump onto a bandwagon. Brian Glanville, to me, he means the doyen of football writers. Simple as that. Um, he's someone I've admired um, since I first started reading newspapers. Uh, I remember reading his stuff as a teenager, reading the Sunday Times, and actually getting quite angry about his take on, on Bobby Robson. But that's, that's part of the joy of Brian. You know, he had firm opinions. He's never been afraid to, to write them. I think he's always said that you know, the, the, the greatest quality journalists can have is their independence, and he certainly showed it. 90% of football writers are influenced by Brian Glanville, and the other 10% should be. Um, I don't think there's any greater tribute than that. Well, Brian's been a, a columnist for World Soccer for, for many, many years. Um, he first wrote for the magazine in, in the early 60s, um, and began a column in, in the 70s, and he's been a, a, you know, a continued presence ever since. Um, and it's a very important column for us, because we cover the whole world of football, so many different aspects, and his, his body of work is extraordinary, I think, um, for someone who's been a, a regular jobbing reporter as well. Uh, his, his literature's phenomenal, uh, he, you know, the plays that he's written, um, and, and you always get the impression that he would have been happier as a playwright, as a novelist, rather than a football writer, but he's, he's, he's an extraordinary, an extraordinary body of work. No sign of retirement, no holidays, no diminishment so far as I can see in his energy. So he is quite inspirational, but also, I think, quite terrifying to most ordinary mortals. If there's one regret my father has, it's that in British culture, unlike American culture, I think he's always felt that there's a certain snobbery towards sports writing. In America, you can be a great sports writer, and I think that he would have loved it if British culture, too, had that same recognition, that you could be a great literary writer, a great sports writer, without there being a distinction. Quite terrifying to most ordinary mortals. That's a good line, Joe. I'll ask Mark about it in the second half of this football library show dedicated to Brian Glanville. You heard in this first half Anthony Clavain, Leo Moynihan, Nick Schapanik, Paddy Barkley, Rob Steen, and just then Roy Hodgson, Matt Dickinson, Gavin Hamilton and Joe Glanville. I suppose you want to discover who's in the top ten of BG's 50 top football moments as described in the Times on the occasion of his 75th birthday, which I will repeat for his 90th. 7. January 1942, Wembley. England 3, Scotland 0. The first pro match I ever saw aged 10. Bill Shankly and Matt Busby were Scotland's wing halves, but they were outplayed. A Scottish sailor and soldier joined in their team's pre-match kick-in unchallenged. Mrs Churchill inspected the teams, then rushed off to greet Winston, back from seeing Stalin in Moscow. Tommy Lawton scored twice for England. Stanley Matthews and Dennis Compton were on the wings. 6. May 1962, European Cup final Amsterdam, the triumph of Eusebio. Though Pushkas, shrewdly abetted by Di Stefano, scored a fine first-class hat-trick, Benfica beat Real Madrid 5-3. The long-legged 20-year-old Eusebio, with his dynamic right foot, his electric pace and skilled control, was the hero of the game. Fouled by Pacin, he banged home the penalty to put Benfica 4-3 ahead, and when Mario Coluna flipped him a free kick, the thundering right-footer took a deflection and sped home. Number four, May 1960, European Cup final, Glasgow. Real Madrid, seven, Eintracht Frankfurt, three. 
De Stefano and Pushkas combined irresistibly to score all seven of Real's goals. Four for Pushkas, three for De Stefano. Pushkas's devastating left foot accounted for three of them. He untypically headed another goal. The tireless, ubiquitous De Stefano surged from one penalty area to the other. Perpetual motion, incarnate. Number two. June 1986, World Cup semi-final, Mexico City. Maradona's goal, solo versus Belgium. There was some slight doubt about the astounding goal Diego Maradona scored for Argentina against England in the Azteca Stadium, Mexico. Some thought England's defence still in a state of shock after he'd punched his notorious hand of God goal against them. But he scored just as amazingly in the next game and at the same end against Belgium, whirling past man after man with still less space than against England, he eluded four defenders before shooting home. And what could be Brian Glanville's favourite moment in all of football? June 1958, World Cup final, Stockholm, Brazil versus Sweden. At 17, the phenomenal Pelé had already scored a hat-trick against France in the semi-final. In the second half of the World Cup final, surrounded in the penalty box by hefty Swedish defenders, he coolly caught a high ball on his thigh, hooked it over his head and smashed it home with his right foot. Yes, I 